Welcome to Move the Needle, the human performance podcast with your hosts, Hunter Eisenhower and Mike Sullivan. Shout out to Lumen Sports for sponsoring this episode. Lumen Sports is your digital headquarter for athletic performance. It's an Australian-made company that centralizes athlete management, team communications, scheduling, data visualizations, and features third-party integrations to save valuable time and elevate decision-making. Lumen is trusted by pro sports teams, colleges, high schools, and high-performance centers. Lumen is an affordable solution that seamlessly connects coaches, athletes, medical staff, and operation teams. You can download a free demo today to find out why teams around the world choose Lumen Sports. All right, today on the podcast, we have Joel Smith. I'm sure most of you know him, um, but Joel, if you want to just give us a brief rundown of where you've been, what you've done, and then we'll get rolling with some questions. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me on. I uh, appreciate being here. So yeah, a lot of people probably know me from the podcast that I run. Um, I've been a strength coach, I guess, just in terms of my coaching background. I think that might be just the most important thing in light of what we're going to talk about in terms of who I've worked with, where I've been. Um, I did six years uh, coaching college track on the division three level as a track coach. And then like the strength coach that doesn't really get paid to be the strength coach and that kind of thing. And um, But then was a strength coach at Cal for eight years uh, working with track initially and then uh, tennis the whole time and then eventually I got into aquatics so water polo and uh, and swim men's and women's swimming uh, which was really good from I maybe this sits on more of the track end of things just because I think motor learning does maybe fit with more track and skill a little bit more maybe than barbell stuff not that it's not important to all aspects but uh, the swim really it helped my motor learning piece just because I think there's something about the water learning skills in the water that are really um, you don't get anywhere else. Um, and then yeah, work with club track when I was at Cal uh, these days, I do a lot of online training and I'm in the gym usually twice a week uh, working with clients. A lot of when I run now, I run a lot of hybrid stuff. So I'll write a program for an athlete locally and then we'll meet up once a week, uh, which is a nice balance. You know, it's a, uh, uh, that's so that's at least from a coaching perspective what I've been to and then my own background is uh, basketball in high school uh, track and field a lot of track stuff awesome I love it so where we wanted to start um, is fairly broad but and so this might be the whole podcast who knows but mm-hmm. can you take us through the process when you get a new athlete um, coming to you what is the evaluation process that you go through and what I think is really interesting about what I've seen of your work is I think that a lot of strength and conditioning coaches, sport for sport performance coaches have very objective evaluation process. Like how much can he bench now? How much can he bench later? How much, how fast is his flying 10 now? How fast is his or her flying 10 later? But what I really like about what you've done is I feel like some of your stuff is subjective. Now you can, you can dig into both realms but kind of what is your evaluation process when you get a new athlete? What are kind of like your big rocks that you want to see and evaluate? Yeah, that's a good question. And that really does highlight, you're totally right. I I, it, and I understand it's very frustrating to talk to people that are very subjective because you're like, well, just give me something I can do, you know? And it's, it's interesting because strength and conditioning or sports performance or athletic performance whatever our titles are, I think it's more athletically based now. I don't, I think strength coach is becoming more of an old school term for the most part. Um, but a lot of strength and conditioning, it's a new field. And it's, it's interesting. Sometimes I think about since we've been around and maybe we'll get to this later, but there's, there was a lot of, a lot of early success in football by incorporating weightlifting. Like these teams were just crushing people on the field, but if you look at what they were doing, I mean, it was super simple. Like some, one team was like, yeah, we do two sets of 12 and it's awesome, you know? (laughs) And it's like, well, how far have we come from there? Like Dan, John talks about this, how far have we really come? And I think we're trying to now that this is a formal job and it's so expansive, find this system or this machine-like system that can somehow be the keys to athletes. And the human body is extremely complex as we all know this. And I just, I find it interesting because I see like when I was at Cal, I saw one of the coaches once had like um like a PlayStation type, like it was like a PlayStation looking machine and you did these tests and it gave you this score. And we all know like the FMS was a pretty massive failure from an actual transference standpoint. I do think the FMS is good in the sense that at least it got people looking at movement. You know, you could say that, hey, it 
it got people looking at movement that wasn't just squatting and deadlifting and whatever subjective squat and deadlift things the coach wanted to see. So I think in that sense, it's good. But I, I, I really wonder, and this also goes from eight years, like when I started at Cal, I, it's funny because I get this job at Cal and I literally have had no formal strength and conditioning mentorship outside of two internships I had done, one of which made me not want to be a strength coach. And the other one actually, which made me not want to be a strength coach, I was like, I'll rather, I'll rather be a track. <laughs> and so like I go in my first week, they're talking about the assessment, which is honestly very well done, lots of intelligence and brilliance behind it. But as well done as it was, and I, what I say by that is it was like eight tests that all had like a, a like a physical therapy background and biomechanical validity, and you would put the pass or fail in Excel, and it could auto-populate correctives based off what they did, which is cool, like super cool. Hank Barron's uh, Cal uh, was the brains behind the Excel piece of that. and But the interesting thing is, is in going through the season, you know, we do this, we all do this really cool assessment. And I never really saw people programming correctives based off of what it was almost like a check the box, you know, and it was like, well, why is it a check the box? Because if we did all this stuff, wouldn't it help? Like, like, I guess if this what I'm trying to say, if this was really helping, like, uh, wow, this is a game changer. Well, wouldn't we just keep doing it? You know, like, I, I think that and who's to say it didn't? I guess in talking to Hank, I know he had said the first year they integrated that type of thing. It really was helpful in injury prevention wise. And then I wonder, well, why do we drop off of that stuff? So I guess long story short is for me, I want to, the best assessment, maybe just like saying, well, the best exercise is the exercise you do. If we're talking about general population, if we're talking about person off the street, well, the best exercise for them is what they actually will do. It doesn't matter what it is. Are you moving? So I think on the base level, the best assessment is what you know and feel good with that you can see your athletes doing every day. And you you don't just know it because someone told you on a screen that it was. And maybe this was it, too, is maybe if I'm a strength coach and someone else made up these assessments and someone else made up these corrections and I don't have an intuitive feel, you know, for what these are doing, it's a little bit less of that connection that's meaningful. And I think we're incentivized to stick with things that are meaningful. And I think a lot of that is what we've been through ourselves. Um, so, you know, with that being said, I, I think a lot of assessments can work. I think a lot of assessments check the box. And I think there's a lot of tests that just kind of, it's almost like in one ear and out the other. It doesn't really do anything. You're just kind of wasting time going through movement. So I, I think that as we grow in skill, our assessment ability should grow as well. And, and in reality, I think one of the ultimate assessments, the ultimate assessment is the least amount. It maybe it's watching people run, watching people do a squat, and maybe like a straight leg raise, which is actually I'm I'm not trying to put myself up. Those are the three things that I have found, <laughs> or if like an athlete's test, if we're talking upper an upper extremity sport like swimming or something. But those I've really strived. I wanted to say striven. This got to be like the wrong word, but like I have strived to reach a place where, and I feel like this should be a thing. Like you know, if you're like a a ninja master you're studying like shaolin you know martial arts you get better at skills every year that you can see the master's a master for a reason the master doesn't come out and pull out a book and go through like you know checking the box he knows it he's lived it and i just think that maybe that's the thing where at least my subjectivity has taken me and and i i fully biased and fully understand i don't like details a lot I will do them if I need to. <laughs> um, you know, we were talking before, uh, you know, I was just mentioning when I wrote Speed Strength, I was pulled tons of research studies and went through the minutia because I knew I had to. But I think if my intuitive feeling says this minutia is not worth it, I will just instantly go to something more global. So I'm biased that way. Not everyone's like me, but I find it more fun to find something that's a little more global and then look at that and try to find mastery at that. So like, just basically, long story short, is I think all assessments have value, but I think ultimately we should be looking for a smaller battery of assessments that takes more skill to assess. Because then otherwise, it's like, well, AI could take your job, right? Or some like entry level guy with just a checkbook could take or a checklist could take your job. There, where's the skill in this stuff? Yeah, um, I hope that makes sense. So no, sorry, I, I'm rambling. but yeah. No, it does. And I think that one thing that I think about now is and like having conversations mm -hmm. with Mike, who 
he does objective stuff, but I feel like when you're in the private setting programming for, for clients, I think you can potentially be a little bit more subjective potentially because you are just working with that client. You don't have a boss above you. That's like wanting numbers. And I think from my situation, I'm like, okay, I need to have objective yeah. testing that I can show improvement to a coaching staff, whatever it may be a front office. But then I also feel like what you just said is very powerful to be able to look at a global movement like sprinting and then be able to have that be an evaluation process for all these different types of qualities. Because like, in my opinion, sprinting is probably the top of the list of best ways to do it because of the movement itself and everything it involves. So I think that that's really powerful. And I think about the people that can probably do that yourself, maybe Dan Paff, and it's just like very locked in skilled practitioners that are able to look at a movement and decipher all these different things, which I think is really impressive. Yeah, it's, it is that even the the sprinting though, like even the way that I look at sprinting, it's interesting to think too. It's almost like, how do you look at sprinting in a way that relates to an athlete on the court, you know, and if they might only be sprinting 10 or 15 meters at most, most times, you know? And so I think that also expands the way that we look at like, what's the expression on their face? Like, do you use rotational energy? Well, how do your feet hit the ground? You know, like it's, it's, it, it, I think it's just fun to look at this movement from a global perspective, even for me having kids, like my son is five and he's playing soccer and he's, he is so skinny. Like he's so tall. He's, he, he's on pace to probably be like six, six, like one seventy or something, you know? I mean, being my son, he sees me exercise and lift weights, so he probably won't be that skinny. You know, he'll probably, I, I think he'll like to do it. But it's funny, or it's very interesting watching his running gait develop. Like, this is where it's really cool being with the youth is because when you get this athlete who's 18, 19, 20 years old, their running just didn't develop out of nowhere. And they didn't get it because some track coach or speed coach told them to do certain things. Like, this stuff starts really early. And so it's like, I'm watching my son strike or my, my son run and he's actually becoming a heel striker early but it's funny because i posted videos of him and he's like super springy off the balls of his feet like he's got the little hyper arch thing he's like a little pogo stick he sees me sub depth jumps in the garage and he does it and he's got like his rsi score is awesome like you know so he's fine and those things not like i'm like coaching him or whatever he just sees me doing it he wants to do it and so it's like all right um but i watch him run and he heel strikes well why does he heel strike so you know, it's funny because I saw him. It's like, man, my kid's a heel striker. What's going on? Um, so, but what's happening is he's he has so little mass. I mean, the kid weighs 46, 47 pounds, right? Like no mass, very little upper body mass. When you have to run on the soccer field, how, you have to have a downward force to be able to accelerate, to be able to move well. You can't be completely in the air like the idealistic track switching form. You have to have this groundedness. So what I watch him doing is his strategy is actually he's trying to learn how to use his arms. Obviously, I don't tell him any of this stuff. I don't plan on ever telling him anything. Um, and I don't plan on ever saying anything about him being a heel striker or anything because he can go and be bouncy. But he runs with his arms locked out, kind of like a flex leg bound, if you can imagine that, where the arms kind of run in this straighter manner. And he's doing that because he's his body is trying to say, how do I run more force for my upper body that doesn't have a lot of mass to help my legs move? And if you try to run with your arms like that, it's just inevitable. You're going to kind of run flat footed. It's just how it's going to happen. So it's kind of cool to watch him and look at the strategies he's in, in organically coming up to move. And he's a good athlete too. My daughter is a little bit more of the, I'll just call her roughneck. Like she's not as skilled. She'll probably be in dance and theater and that's great. Um, but my son's a good athlete. It's cool to watch how his body is is putting these things together. So long story short, it's like, Running is cool because you see everything, all the layers. It's like a tree trunk. You're seeing all the layers that came before this to the athlete that you see now. And you see all these strategies. So, you know, for me, who's a little ADHD, I like, oh, it could be this. It could be this. You know, it's like this puzzle. It's less like I think people who are more like who did better in calculus than I did in high school. <laughs> or I should say pre-calculus. I didn't make the calculus. People who did better at that stuff <laughs> than I did in high school probably would like details a little bit more. I think the way my brain works, I like something that is innately a little bit more subjective. Um, but I, like you said, you know, and that is the interesting thing is one, you have people who expect numbers, which is just, it is what it is, right? Yeah, I mean, you could argue, I mean, because you, you need to see something, but then I do think there is value in table tests. And I'll say the only reason I 
haven't gotten a table test is because with all the things I'm interested in in a training session, that just isn't high enough on the list typically for what I do. Like you said, being in the private sector too, they might change if it was, um, you know, a, a team setting or something like that. So I do think there's value in like table tests and having objectivity less your, and even coach to coach, there's subjectivity and what's good sprint technique. So there's always good to have something that's concrete that you cannot argue um, as long as you're testing right too and not like cranking people the wrong way but yeah so sorry again kind of going um, off a little bit but I uh, hope that that gives you guys some ideas to work with here yeah I think the I think the children is such a I don't have children I know both of you guys have children so I think just as a coach the view of children once you are a coach is like the most incredible continuing education topic ever because you just get to redefine everything you kind of understand about athleticism but um two things that so interestingly enough thinking about like assessments i know we talked about this on our podcast with justin achoa but we talked about like the assessment process specifically with like in the setting of the private sector like the nfl combat nfl product group and it's such an incredibly short amount of time and like my first year doing it our assessment process was like the first full day that was our assessment process. And after the first full day, we did table tests. We did all kinds of different, very typical assessment stuff. And after that first full day, we started training and we never really readdressed any of the assessment stuff because like we knew what our end goals were. And regardless of what their mobility was at the start, we still had the same end goals. And it was like, okay, if we have eight weeks and five days of training, you know, let's just say that's 40 days of training. We're going to take one full day to just do assessments that we don't really touch ever again. So for us, trying to hone that in in an actually effective way has been like super impactful because mm -hmm. when a one day out of 40 days is like, that's a big, big chunk of training relative to really any other point in time of the year. Um, and then with the, it's funny that you bring up Dan Pat Hunter because um, I remember seeing him do working with an athlete, like a world-class sprinter who had chronic Achilles tendinopathy. And he was like at the end of his career being like, if I can't figure this out, like I'm done running. And everywhere he went to, it was like pain, 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 pain. And then at one point, Dan saw him run from behind. And it was like six years ago, that sprinter had fractured his like right scapula and he was having chronic left Achilles pain. And he just noticed running from behind that he was like, something was happening in his scapula that was like pushing like left foot a little bit further to the side that was causing a little bit more like rotation in his uh, um, Achilles. And that was his Achilles tendinopathy. And then them clearing up his scapula was the thing that saved this dude's sprinting career. So it's like, there was no table test in all of table yeah. tests that would have figured out that, Hey, my left or my right shoulder is causing Achilles tendinopathy. That might end my, my, end my sprinting career when everybody else would have looked at, okay, what's happening at your foot and ankle which may be happening at your knee and your hip, but it went all the way up. So this subjective nature is like so incredibly important and being able to like hone that in, is just like the most important thing. And I say that selfishly because I have an athlete who has Achilles tendinopathy and he has an XFL contract starting in January. And he's like, if I can't figure this pain out, then like I'm done playing football. Cause it's been like six years of me just being in pain. So like we've been working like so hard to figure out exactly what that is. And it's been a super long process. And we think we're training in the right direction, but also it's like, it's so hard to know with some of that pain. Yeah, it is. Yeah, that's so cool. Or such a cool um, anecdote with Dan there. And it is, it is, it definitely is a thing where I, like, if you asked me, like, I saw this question and I was like, what is my assessment? Like it is, like it is sprinting. It basically is sprinting, squatting and uh, straight leg raise. And then uh, obviously uh, just other stuff. Like when I have athletes in a lot of it, is stuff we do every day. So it's like, how do you lunge? How do you backwards lunge? How do you crawl? How do you backwards crawl? How do you do basic series of hops? Like we do these every day for the most part or not every, or at least every week. So at least I'm seeing them every week. And I think that helps too. If it, the more close to training it can become and the more often you do it, I think that's really important. Um, and I do think that it is, and everyone's, I think strengths are ultimately different, but I think we should seek to like, you know, maybe you're, you're in, you know, not that anyone learns assessments in school. I didn't learn assessment in exercise science or even masters. Like I didn't learn anything. And, but you would think like, okay, if you had these tiers, you created this pyramid of getting better at assessing athletes. It probably does start with things that have numbers assigned to them and are objective, but 
I think that just the and the only problem is just there's no plan or no thought process of how do we grow beyond that? How do you like if Dan Path is up here? Well, what were all the steps in the middle? You know, is there some intermediate assessments that you should be able to watch? Like you could watch like a flex like bound that has less degrees of freedom than a sprint. You know, there's less things of complexity. Maybe let's start by watching that. Let's watch a, Oh, skips too. I, this is my, that's actually like the first thing I should have said in assessments. I have an athlete skip just because that is a good way to tell. Um, that's where a software thing, but it tells you what's their mental program when it comes to training and running. Are they reflexive and loose and reactive or are they trying to do something their coach said? And are they really front side dominant forcing everything? Um, so that's a big one I do too. Uh, but yeah, it is interesting to think about how do you ultimately we should be able to, yeah, have at least some level of mastery related to gait and watching gait. And I guess the question would be, how do you get from just pure objectivity to watching someone actually move and be able to have uh, a, a good like process that doesn't run too many, uh, biases and mental heuristics along the way. Cause that's very easy to do. A lot of people watch someone run and jump and just say what their coach said or so interesting yeah, to think about. I think uh, also whenever I think about not to keep mentioning his name, but Dan Paff, he's probably watched how many people sprint in his life. Mm -hmm. Like once you've seen that many people, there's probably things that start to stick out to you and you're able to pick out. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, we want to start, start broad on some of these questions and then dig in a little bit deeper. And I know we really haven't mentioned this specific aspect, but something that I wanted to touch on was an evaluation process, but specifically for the feet. And it's funny because we wrote these questions over the past couple of days, sent them to you. And then you put that post out yesterday of the slow motion hopping, which I thought was awesome. But can you dig into that process a little bit when you're specifically looking at the feet? And is that something that you do? Like you have somebody come in and with the first couple of days, you have them with their shoes off and you're kind of just watching them hop, move, hit some pogos. Yeah. I think the main ones with the feet itself, um, I guess I look at, maybe I can start with what's on my online assessment is usually how your toes flat or curled and does your pinky toe slide under your fourth toe uh, or is it kind of like off to the side and sometimes have them send a picture. I, I don't actually get horribly deep with it. It's funny because I think I was looking more into it, let's say four years ago, and I've gotten to the point where I don't actually go quite as far simply because to me, it's almost like the, the simplest story. You can't really say it here or you can't, I can't like, draw a picture so much necessarily, <laughs> but if the pinky toe is curled under, it kind of shows, well, where's the force biasing to travel in the foot. And if the pinky toe is curled under, basically it shows that force is biasing in rolling towards the outside edge of the foot, which the outside edge is important. Like it's actually kind of the baseline of, of being able to create a stiffness response. And it's funny that post actually did. I was trying to do a post where I had uh, a tighter like arch of the foot, like transverse arch. And then I had like a looser transverse arch where the foot had more spread at the bottom, which totally fits with RSI. I mean, the RSI almost doubled as soon as it had no spread, but I couldn't <laughs> find a good way to, um, to like post that. It was such a minute difference. I was like, no one's going to get this. This is actually what drives me nuts with social media is the, if it's so minute that I have to sit there and dig it out, it's just like, this is going to get like 10 likes and that's, it's not all about <laughs> likes, but it's, you know, I just like, no one's going to get this. And so, yeah. so I, but what is interesting is that when I was letting my arches go looser, the, actually the big glaring piece was I had a wider stance that led to the low RSI, the narrow stance led to the high RSI reactive strength. And so it's like the narrow stance kind of lines you up more on that ball, the pinky toe to bounce. Mm -hmm. um, but that being said, uh, I find that people who, yeah, people who have a rolled to the outside little toe or inside, like it's a rolled under little toe, they tend to not have a lot of reflexive um, potential. If you think about the transverse arch of the foot, so that's like the, the arch that runs from the pinky toe to the big toe. It's like this dome in the front of the foot. The cuboid bone is the keystone of that arch. So we have like three arches in the foot and we have three keystones. So it's like, it's really cool. It's amazing architecture. It's like just super cool. And so the keystone of the transverse arch, which to me is like, that's the big one. Um, that sits just above the second toe. And so if you were to stand on PVC pipes, for example, you'll probably feel the balance point on those PVC pipes is around second toe. Um, 
Kadur Ziani, like the Algerian or French dunker guy, um, he's been on like, you know, Mark Bell's podcast and, you know, kicks the rim and he can like pull his leg back behind his head, does all these crazy like tricks and stuff. Um, and he had a, there was a podcast, Chong Zhi, who's a big foot guy, was on my show a long time ago, did with um, Kadur. And he has like the calluses. Uh, Chong is really into calluses. Like where do really elite jumpers have calluses? And for Kadur, it was like base a second toe. And to me, it's like, that is, you know, it's a keystone, you know, that's where the keystone is. That's where that balance point is. And so I do think, you know, I'm not hundred percent convinced every athlete needs to have their callus point right there, but I can tell you that the further you get off balance, especially to the outside, you tend to get people who have a hard time producing a, like an effective response, elastic response off the ground. So yeah, seeing, and then of course the Darian bar is well known for saying pinky toe up. Um, you'll see instant RSI improvements just with that cue, but obviously we don't want it to have to be a cue. We don't want it to be something an athlete has to think about all the time. You want to find ways to trick athletes into doing that ideally. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I watch anyways, uh, it's the pinky toe curled under, is it not? And basically where is the force landing in the transverse arch? That's one. And then the other would be, are you late stance, mid stance, or more of a balanced stance? Um, and that's like the hopping thing. Can you get your heels down when you hop? Um, and that's not something I, you know, I, I don't make a big deal of that. I try not to make a big deal of this stuff to any athlete just because I hate like the idea of saying you're broken. Like a lot of, I think it's very easy actually the private sector to really play up off of an assessment saying, well, look how effed up you are, you know, well, you got to come in and we'll fix all this stuff. And, you know, like it's, I just don't think that's a great idea from an actual performance perspective. So a lot of times those athletes, I'll just have them hop backwards all right well now you can feel your heel and we do actually do lately i've been into a lot more this is kind of a rabbit trail but a lot more like just like shaking stuff like flat foot just like kind of like letting the body pulse up and down and shake and keeping it on a flat foot it's more like qigong or qigong qigong type stuff i don't know if you could do it in d1 basketball you'd have to trick them into doing it uh, i can i i have to find ways to trick athletes into doing that kind of thing uh but yeah stuff that so yeah, big things really is just where's the force lie on the transverse arch, and then are you mid are you, are you overly late stance, and how can we get you in a mid stance if you are? Those are two of the bigger things that I look at. You mentioned the uh, pinky toe underneath the fourth toe, and yeah. that is me to a T. Like I've never even thought about that before. I always just said like, oh, basketball shoes. Like my feet were probably like hitting the front of my shoes my whole life. Like. My toes are probably wedged. Like people always talk about like our shoes are creating like a different formation of our actual feet, but sounds like I don't have any chance of being a reflexive athlete. Ah, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's just a, we gravitate towards what is easy or reductionism. I'm not saying the tight shoes don't have a play a role there. Yeah. Um, I just think it's, it's not the whole thing, you know, and I, not to say like, I mean, even for me, my toe rolls, my even my toe and I have a pretty good like I'm an athlete who literally is built on RSI ability like my high jumping or basketball or a lot of my sprint speed stuff is very RSI related I wish I could see my feet in high school to be honest I think it got worse like in my 20s when I did more powerlifting stuff and that kind of type of thing um so it's like I do think a little bit is okay and this is this was something I kind of went through when I was working with the Darian studying with him he talked about pinky toe up and I looked down at my foot and I'm like like, damn, I'm way rolled under what, you know, what's going on. Then um, I kind of find that as long as it can create like enough upward to create tensile ability, you're probably okay. You know, like I think unless it's like buried and almost permanently buried and it's almost more a thing where if an athlete has a bad RSI and the pinky toe, it's curled under, which it probably is. Those are the two things that go together. If an athlete can have a good RSI and it's not horrible, you know, it's all right. But it is something to, you know, it's funny. I like when I go to like the pool or like the water park, I was at the water park, like standing in line, like for this slide, looking at people's feet. And it's just like, I saw it's, I was thinking like, I'm like, oh, that guy looks like, I bet that guy can jump really high. Like you'll look at this, like the, the way that arch is kind of designed and stuff like that. I mean, I, I've had athletes though. I've had athletes instantly, like we'll be doing like a pogo jump test, even like slam board hops, like Marinovich style stuff. And they're kind of just long on the ground and it looked very good. I'm like, hey, just lift your pinky finger up. And they're like, really? I'm like, yeah. And it just cleans it up 
instantaneously. So, but I don't think that's like, um, I don't think that's like a hack, like, like, you know, neuroscience hack, do this hack. Like it shouldn't be that it's more good. I think athletes who have the nervous system to just wire up and are, are coordinated, we'll just do that automatically, even in the movements. They'll just maybe just subtle, you know, it's just enough that just pulls that thing enough. Whereas some athletes just have nothing. If you watch their hands, and this is another piece, you watch their hands, they're doing pogos or little single leg hops, and you see nothing here. And I have my hand out, and my hand is just like a, you know, a kind of a half fist. It's doing literally zero. Then there is no compensatory action to drive any stiffness into the foot. So that's another piece of the equation is you can override a bad alignment by just being a good athlete. And I think that's for me, I have a little bit of curl under with the pinky, but I think I fix it in motion, you know, <laughs> so that that's another confounding variable. For you, um, just kind of a specific question for swimmers. How have you noticed the, the foot structure of a swimmer being so barefoot in the water all the time compared to like land sport athletes? Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know if you, I've mentioned this. I think I may have mentioned this on the podcast, but so there was one year, and this was right after the podcast I did with Chong and the hyperarch thing and the curled toes. And we had a swimmer who was like a really good short course swimmer. So 25 yard pool rewards, starting ability rewards, turns and pushing off the wall more than just your ability to swim. And this guy, um, his, he had like a 41 inch jump on the just jump. So like, I don't know, maybe like a 33 or something on a normal set of force plates um, 75 centimeters on a normal set of force plates and his toes were long and like hooks, like talons. It was crazy. But then I'd watch like, like Nathan Adrian walk, walking around. Who's like 2012 gold medalist in the hundred freestyle, good short course, but also equally good long course where, where actual swimming ability is key. Um, as well as some of the other guys, um, Josh Perneau, I think was a little bit like that. Um, Jacob Pebbly, these names probably don't mean anything, but like a lot of these guys who are elite long course swimmers, their feet, their toes were just like flat against the ground, very little tension in the feet because there shouldn't be too much tension. Your foot's a flipper, you know, it, it right. needs to be this loose flipper. And in so many ways, I, I've been thinking about, I try not to go off the deep end of springs and coils and spirals and, you know, sacred geometry and the secrets of the universe, but it does play a role in how we move and looking at that. And if you think of an athlete as a spring, we all move in, in the way, the same way the energy travels down a spring. Like if you pull one end of a spring, it kind of happens in a surge. All the coils don't instantly pull. You kind of have this wave of energy that goes from one end to the other. And you may have heard the psoas works like that too, or muscles work like that, where you pull on one end and one end shortens up, but the other end is long. So like we have the same coil-like principle in a spring that works in each muscle. And I look at the muscles of a swimmer in so many ways are basically just like a spring that's a little bit longer and looser. You know, it's like long, loose, and it needs to be that way to fit with, because swimming is a surge. It's it's slow enough that you feel the surges and shape changes going through your body. Where moving on the ground is a much tighter, more packed spring. Still a spring, but it's much more like, bam, you know, it's still, it's just, you still have that wave-like energy. It just happens really fast and so fast that most athletes aren't even thinking about it, probably nor should they. So swimmers essentially have a longer, looser coil and that travels and is expressed all the way down into the feet. Now, one thing that I was curious about, and I think the swimmer compared to, let's say a track athlete is a good um, visual for it. Would it be possible, let's say you have a swimmer who's swam their whole life, they hit whatever, let's say... 10th grade and they say i want to be a 100 meter sprinter joel like turn me into a 100 meter sprinter would it be possible to then take that structure and begin to give it the qualities needed to be a more reflexive foot or is it really difficult to take a very low tensile non-reflexive foot and turn it into the opposite and if you were to how would you try to go about doing that yeah, I think Chong Z actually talked about that a little bit. He had said, I think he, the, so Chong was the guy who came, who was the first person that I know of to notice and then put out there that the foot changes shape based off of demands. So if it's demand is a lot of really springy stuff, 
uh, explosive, uh, a lot of force in a small amount of time, the foot starts to take on a more like compressive look to it. Like if people have seen LeBron James's foot, for example, it's like a, it's a really nice foot to push off of. It doesn't look very good. Um, but Chong had said the more he did like the hyper arch hop type stuff, hyper arch hop is basically just think, just think a, ha- a quarter squatted pogo on the balls of the foot where the ankle doesn't move much. It stays kind of around 90 degrees. It's a great exercise. And I think he goes like diagonal and stuff, different directions. It's a great movement. Um, he said when he did that a lot, he said his swimming actually got worse. <laughs> and so I think it could make sense in that you're taking a spring and you're making it tighter and more coiled. And this is maybe part of the reason I'm, I'm so bad at kicking. Like I like learning to swim because I like learning new skills. Like I have swim coaches who have taught me. Um, I talked to Andrew Sheaf every once in a while. He was formerly at University of Virginia. He has a book called Constraints Based Swimming. So I like like learning different skills in different areas. And I'm just like, I suck at kicking. My foot doesn't point like a ballerina, which you need for swimming well. And I think it's just so used to high jumping. It's just like, oh. Um, and then my wife will jump in the water and she can just dolphin kick like and go twice as fast as me. I'm like, I can't even move. Um, but I'm working on some stuff to, to get better anyways. Um, I, you, I would say, yes, you could. Like if I took a swimmer who they, they like, I want to play volleyball now or something on the gland and be a bouncy bouncy. Yeah. I think if you just started doing like a high volume of that kind of work, like hyper chop, uh, yeah, absolutely. Like, uh, I think that you could certainly enlicit changes. Um, how much change I think is the question. Uh, based, I think a lot, there's a lot of formation before age 18 with the tendon maximal potential and things. So I think you could a little bit, um, just how much is probably based off what you were doing before age 18. Yeah, that makes sense. And that's funny because, I think it's funny because like, uh, in, in track and field, right. Everybody, everybody is in a boot at some point in time. And it's <laughs> when you're, uh, when you're a sprinter, like the first thing that they do is like, okay, you're in a boot, go to a, go to a swim workout. There's nothing worse than trying to get a track sprinter to get in the pool and do a swim workout. It's like the absolute last type of workout they want to possibly do. I'm sure for a lot of reasons, but that's got to be definitely one of them. Well, I'll tell you, it depends on like actual swimming, like swim swimming. Yes. Like swim swimming sucks if you're a track sprinter. Like I, even when I was like learning how to swim at Cal, like this, the volunteer assistants would teach me and I couldn't like, I felt like I was drowning. Like I do like 500 yards and I'm like, this is one quarter of someone's warm-up and I'm like dead and I can barely breathe but the like if you ever see like the Marinovich videos those are awesome like with the little like uh they're like the little they have like these little wrist and foot bands with like the little that you can really like d- dig into the oscillation and stuff like that uh when I was coaching track at Wilmington we would be in the pool a college a little d3 school in Ohio we would be in the pool once a week Wednesday just doing sprint drills in the shallow end mostly um so some of the elite track people i work with online i program pool stuff for them on a regular basis like randy huntington talked about that too but again i I think it's you're not swimming you're you're doing like dynamic stuff and it's it's easy and there's no learning curve that's the key i think if it's like hey go swim (laughs) maybe maybe for a month (laughs) i would do it with like distance runners just if they're like hard up on like pain you know and and being tough or whatever and want to learn new skill like that i'd I would maybe subject them to that. Probably not sprinters though, but um, yeah, yeah. I, I, it's it's a. I think the water can be awesome though if used in the correct way. Mike, did you have anything else on the foot that you wanted to hit on? No, I feel like we could probably talk about it for a while, but yeah, uh, I think we can move on. Yeah. All right. So I don't want to like rush through these questions, but there's also some that we really want to get to. So we'll we'll keep rolling. Um, one thing that I've heard you talk about recently, and I've actually seen it pop up a little bit more now. Um, and, and it kind of sticks to the polarity aspect that we were kind of just talking about with like a swimmer and more of a bouncy athlete, but now transitioning to kind of like the weight room and how you see things. One, one topic you've talked about recently, um, is kind of like the polarity and training and the, the importance and potential power of it. Um, and I don't want to put words in your mouth and to say that this middle ground, like speed, strength, strength, speed, uh, power exercises where you're moving lightweights fast um isn't important but i just kind of want you to talk about like the polarity and the power of training speed and maximal strength and then do you think there's less return of return on investment with that middle ground stuff um or do you think that like surfing the force velocity curve is a good way to go about training yeah i just think it depends on your goals really i 
you know, this may goes in, I think if we get to the last question, like, what would I say that a lot of people would disagree? <laughs> I, I just, I do disagree with, I think, how far we tend to go in the middle. I think, I think we go in the middle a lot just because it's there in the sense, like, I don't know, if you think about an athlete, like you think about, shouldn't an athlete just mostly play their sport and then just do a little bit of lifting and be good, you know, like it's, but it's like, because sports performance exists, um, you know, Stuart McMillan had mentioned something like this in his last blog or this term called good arts, good hearts law. And Kirwan and Flat brought it up too recently. Um, but it was basically the idea that it's an, it, it came from the economy. It was basically like, as soon as um, like a measure becomes the objective that will cause the system to downgrade. So an example could be, I'm a nail factory and now this, the economic success, I make that tied to how many nails we make. Well, then we might just start making a bunch of really small little nails that don't do anything. Or if I say, well, no, the, the, you know, I don't know, like the size of the nail is the most important. Then we make too many big nails that now we can't sell enough units or something like that. Like basically the, the ultimate function is something that's more complex, but as humans, we like to make things easy and manageable by creating these like little zones and two, like we want to do a good job. Like we wanted, we have a job and we want to do a good job at it. And we want to find new ways to try to do more. Um, I think that, I guess what's interesting is maybe like with strength and conditioning started, you know, it's like people are saying, Hey, we did two by 12 and it worked great, you know? And it's almost like, that's kind of a polarity right there. Two by 12. It's very muscular. It's very, you could say physiological, it's not very, you're not really getting into like more the explosive skill of things and you're letting the field take care of that. So that itself is a pretty polarized start to the, the industry. I don't know what Boyd Epley sets and reps were, but I think it was much more along the lines of three by 10, three sets of 10. And what's interesting is I think that Jay Schrader's system is the only one I can think of that's actually even more polarized in the sense of you're going to start with ISOs. That's even simpler. It's even more simple, more rudimentary and more just base adaptations that have nothing to do with sport. And, but I think instead of most people going that way, they go the other way. Whereas let's get closer to sport. Let's, um, let's make, you know, let's do some power. Let's met and put a tendo on the bar. I don't think those are bad things. I just don't, I just don't think that they, like, if you look at what makes a good athlete, like if you spend time in sport, in athletics, and you look at all the things that make a good athlete, you spend time at practice or practicing the skill, I think it changes your perspective on all the things that we could spend time on, if that makes sense. Like, do we really need to spend time on this when, well, you're already moving explosively in your sport. So why do we need to also do like put a, you know, put so much focus on like good arts law, like what the bar speed velocity thing says? Um, I don't think it's bad. I just think, I just think it probably is time spent that just probably doesn't need to be is all. Um now, if I am a track athlete, though, and the only thing or swimming and literally the only thing I have is outputs and I live and die for outputs and that extra five inches on my long jump or inch on my high jump or whatever, then it is more in my realm to really want to explore those things because this is my sport. It all matters based off this one extra inch I could jump high. And so now getting into those middle zones is good. But speaking as a track athlete, though, I can tell you, I would spend more time on the track in those zones. Like I would do stuff with sleds. I would do over, I would do different shades of my jump. I would do like parkour type stuff. I would do, it would all be more or less in the realm of my sport more, more than not. Um, I do think playing around with a little contrast stuff in the weight room for sure could be helpful. Um, but I would do more though. That middle ground would exist in the event itself. And I just think that to me, that would be the most efficient way to do it. I think the middle ground, I, again, I, I don't, I'm not like judging getting there because I think a lot of really smart people and there's a lot of good work and there's a lot of good work I don't know about, but just in general observation, what makes an elite athlete elite and what makes them better? I don't know if it's trying to squeak out stuff in the middle ground, but, and then I think the last thing I'll just say is I think that there's something to with good arts on the number in some ways, I almost look at the middle ground in the sense of what if, like, 
like Werner Gunther style contrast training where, where, you know, you're doing like a pre fatigue and then go do some jumps. And it's almost like there's, it's just about the complexity. It's not about a number, if that makes sense. Uh, to me, I would almost be in some ways more inclined to do that because I almost feel like there could be, I wouldn't say death by numbers, but I'm like, you can only put a number on so many things. You know, how many numbers does an athlete need to see in the course of their day? Um, maybe yeah. that would be a question. And I, and I don't know the answer to that. I'd be curious what you think, to be honest, <laughs> because this is, these are just things I think of. Um, and I, I wasn't tasked with so many numbers in the sense of even when I work with swimmers and things like that, I had swimmers that we crushed weight room numbers. Like when I was doing clean, like measuring clean speeds or, these metrics. And then I'd get a athlete and he didn't swim faster. And it's like, you know, what the hell? Like, and, and, but then you get, it. it's like, it is all about your sport and how can I, how can I fit into this and how can I do the most I can do on my end of it? You know, um, it is an interesting question. I think uh, it's super interesting that you say that because we had Danny Foley on and he was talking about just some of the ways that he kind of takes his fascial driven programs. And we were asking him and a question that he gets all the time is, how do you put a measurement on what you're doing? Because that's what everyone wants to know. Yeah. And he was saying like, why can't we just say that if I feel better playing my sport, if I'm healthier and I'm doing my sport well, why can't I use that as my metric of success? And we were like, good, but like, nah, nah, give us something else because that's so shunned as the metric of success within strength and conditioning. So that brings me to a tangent that I want to jump down. Hunter, if you want to follow up though, feel free to, because I kind of have a follow-up question that is a secondary tangent. All I was going to say is, Joel, you said like seeing numbers and how important you think that really is. And something I've realized being back in collegiate athletics now is just how glued to a screen or some sort of number feedback these athletes really are. Like I swear their total screen time per day is probably... 12 of the 16 hours they're awake. It's like absolutely insane. So initial thought might be, well, then I don't want them to see more numbers, but I think they're so wired by seeing numbers that what I've seen is that if I can show them numbers and it's not even necessarily talking about the middle ground, like maybe we're doing something that's like running through lasers, like mm -hmm. they are fired up for that versus just like, Hey, we're going to go run this flying 10 with no, uh, timing i think it's oh, also like the competitive that'd be the worst sense. by the way flying yeah, that was... timing i, I would be i could have i yeah, would have a hard time with that or when the timing system breaks oh man i get so mad it's like yeah maybe, yeah so i think that like to numbers i think it definitely helps but I, I hear you and i continue to think about like training the what i think of like extremes which is just another way of saying like the polarity in training but i think it's like isos to maximal speed to maybe some maximal strength stuff and trying to like hit those things but anyways, Mike, you can uh, jump down your tangent. Yeah, so uh, Hunter and I were having this conversation a little while ago, Joel, and it was he was texting me and we were talking about the internship that's being done at Arizona State and kind of the curriculum that's being done. And we were just talking about like what kind of makes sense for like young coaches in the field. And your answer made me think about that interaction that, that we had, Hunter. And so I guess my question, Joel, would be, if you were to, and I know you've talked about in the past how, and you kind of said earlier, you kind of started this profession with very little in terms of mentorship. You kind of were figuring things out for yourself as you were going. So if you were to like structure kind of this internship curriculum or schedule for someone who is super young in the field, how would you do that? And what are, the, what are some of the things that you'd want to get them exposed to early and often? Yeah, I think honestly, where I will go with this answer and I, I have, like, I've taught strength and conditioning courses. Uh, back when I was at Wilmington College, I taught out of the science and practice book. And so, you know, it's, it's something that I do think about, uh, as well as just having courses myself. And then I'm even still thinking about, like, how do, like, just hierarchies of how do you teach people things? And I think that just so much of it is experiential, is the sense that, like, like a sports performance coach, um, or therapist, they, there is this divide too, right? Like a lot of times a sports performance coach was not the best athlete. They got more meaning out of training. They got more meaning out of training numbers. I mean, I did, I, I was better at jumping over a bar that I knew how high it was than being good at basketball. 
And that's part of the reason I got into sports performance. It was outputs and all those things. Um, and I, I just think though that, that what, what I do think benefited me in that I didn't have a lot of formal mentorship is I had to learn so much stuff myself through feeling and trying and failing. And I find that now, like I see this a lot, like people go to a seminar and they come back and all the drills that were in the set, if it's FRC, they come back and they're doing all the cars and whatever, you know, like without doing it themselves or trying it or feeling it or anything. And same thing with like, or PRI, hey, we're going to do these wall drills or 9090 drills. And it's like, have you gone through this? Like what I learned from, if I was, I, I like the the Bushido or the, you know, the, the Shaolin stuff, just because I, there's a book, it's on my shelf, I think back here, where is it? Maybe I can't pull it out the moment, but it's it's really it's called the spiritual journey of Joseph Greenstein, who's a strong man called the Mighty Adam. He was like you know five four in the early 1900s, World War One, World War Two era. Most of the strongmen were huge. This guy is small and has to come up with ways to show his strength, like so he just bites nails and bends horseshoes and stuff. But he was a really good wrestler. I mean, this guy's like the dude. Like I I, I was so inspired by his story. I started fasting like one day out of the week. Like he fasted twice a week, you know, two 24 hour periods, and had 10 kids and had his own business and all this cool stuff. <laughs> and, and, but he was like a, a international level wrestler early on. And, but he was a longshoreman and traveled to Japan for a while and studied from this guy who was like a, a jujitsu master there and a guy in his fifties who could kick everybody's ass in the gym, like just knew all the moves. Just sh -sh -sh -sh. And it's like, well, who would you want to learn from? Do you want to learn from a guy who read about jujitsu or a guy who could kick your ass like with no, questions asked it is an embodied practice it's it's both you know but i just think we are so heavy i mean the whole i just think generally the whole world for the most part is more of the learn intellectualize process and i mean i've been through plenty of that trust me um i don't say this from someone who doesn't have that side um but i also just think that there is such i, I see such a gap with the experiential aspect of things even to the point and and so just to that point i would say that if I could design a class, it would be an experiential class where you go through different physical practices and you feel what is felt to do that practice. Even myself, I'm going to coach swimmers, so I'm going to learn how to swim. Like when I was a Cal, I, I could still do the butterfly pretty good. I actually could do the butterfly now way better than I could at Cal, but I'm proud that I can do that because I feel like if I'm coaching swimmers, I should be able to do that. Like, you know, and maybe there's nothing one-to-one -one that I'm writing that's like, I, but it's going to influence my subconscious in what really matters in the gym and how to communicate it to them and ultimately they know if they can see you can do that that's a huge belief stoking aspect too and i just i don't know to me it's like there is this stereotype of like oh strength coaches and all they care about is lifting and they can't scratch their back or whatever you know whatever stereotypes you want to throw in there but and i i just say this too i've been humbled like i remember i went to uh rafe kelly is a big like parkour and human movement and embodiment um, a proponent. I went to his re uh, retreat up in Washington state and it was like a lot of parkour, parkour in nature. I have a jumping background and I was humbled with my ability to like do these tricks in nature and my movement there. And I was like, and I felt like I need to spend more time practicing this. And I just think that we don't, I just think that there needs to be a little more of that, like, like that, like, like you could say, Ido Portal generalist, but like just to be good at skills, to be good at learning skills yourself, and then you have that intuition on what is meaningful for the group in front of you. Um, I would also put like, hey, we're going to train for like a five-step long jump or something. You know, something that's like, hey, you got to learn this skill. It's not just lifting. And you feel and go through what improved it and what didn't. And maybe you reflect on that. And I think it is those processes that have helped me. So I would try to put more of that in some basic way in the program, just because I just think, again, we... This is such an embodied, ideally, really an embodied thing that I think we have very much intellectualized into a lot of numbers. And yeah, I agree with that. I get what you said, Hunter, too. I have some more thoughts on that one, too. But that's, that might be a whole other conversation. Um, but I definitely get it. I, I definitely get it with the dopamine stuff. Anyways, uh, yeah, that's, that's in long story short, that is a block that I would try to put in there. I think it would be really important. I, I like the experimental piece and and tying this back to our original reason for this conversation in our internship program here and internship programs that I've been a part of in the past and ran myself. It's like very like, Hey, we're going to learn this, right? This program, present this program. But even just thinking like, I'm supposed to give a, a presentation on, on speed, the whole realm of speed. 
next week. And I was like, the, the way my brain works is like, okay, I'm going to have like this PowerPoint put together and talk about different things and show. And now I'm thinking based off your question, like, because that's kind of been the structure of this internship to this point, maybe I just take them outside and have them mm-hmm. warm up and sprint and accelerate. And maybe we run some flying tens and mm-hmm. some of them will probably pop a couple hamstrings and that's we'll, a, that's uh, part of it. They'll yeah. learn. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, that's, I, I really like that idea. And, um, I mean, shoot, well, how much time do we have? I don't want to keep you too long. I, I was going to say, I, think I could, I could do 10 or 15 more minutes. Okay. Uh, so we can, we can do a few more. Cool. So, uh, um, I, I kind of want you to jump down that, that, uh, dopamine rabbit hole, but we'll, for the sake of some of the questions we have left, we'll keep that one in the vault. So, yeah, I, I just wanted to finish with this one and then we can do our very last question that we do everybody. And this is, um, something that Hunter and I both have been talking a lot about, um, and me specifically, uh, but I want to hear from you about just your experience with just fly specifically. And just however much or little you want to share about how you felt just going from Cal and diving in full time with Just Fly with kind of everything that that comes along with that from leaving a full time position in the Pac-12 to moving all the way across the country and and really diving in. Yeah, yeah, um, it's definitely a little bit different question. So it's a good one. It I'll tell you, yeah, I I never. <laughs> I had never thought of myself as any sort of entrepreneur or anything like that. Like when I started at Wilmington College when I was 25, I was just thinking, oh, well, I just want to climb the ladder. I want to get a job in Division Two track and field or Division One. And even when I got the it was it was actually a, a difficult process at Wilmington College where like basically my job was more just getting kids to go to the school. And, you know, hope no one from Wilmington is listening to this. I don't think it was a very good school. Like the graduation rate was terrible. I'd lose a bunch of kids to grades, you know, like it was just like, I, I, I you know, I'm sure there's, there's a lot of kids who went through who had a good experience, but I was just like, I just don't want this to be the defining part of my job is recruiting kids and who can recruit more kids and being on the phone late to do that. Um, and so that was a big reason that the website just like came about. I had always blogged before. I always like just comfortably wrote and that, the just fly actually ended up getting me to Cal um, it was interesting though. Cause I wanted to do track and it's like, I, it was, I was just offered though with, Hey, you can go D one, but you have to be the strength coach for track, which honestly for me was not, to be honest, that wasn't that exciting. It was like, it was exciting cause it was new and it was division one. And then you get there and I'm like, I was even thinking in my head at the time of a, the possibility of maybe just being a few years D one as a strength coach, then that would help me to maybe to get a better track job. And then in being around track, I was like, I don't know if I want another track job. <laughs> um, not right now, at least. Not to say that would never be on the table. And then I got to work with swimming, which is great. But just long story short is I think the whole time, just being a strength, I shouldn't say it, it probably sounds bad, but being just um, in the college sector with the way my brain works and why, and being more of a track coach at heart and those types of things. Uh, and then there's also like restrictions in the NCAA. Like I, I actually like some high schools like, Hey, do you want to be an assistant coach for us or something? And it's like, Oh, compliance can't do it. And that was, that was frustrating. Cause like, I really wanted to expand um, into more of the output in the track side of things. And so, you know, it was, it was a thing that actually, I think I always wanted um, a little more of that freedom and just to be able to do more of what I wanted Um and so, yeah, I, it wasn't actually that hard to make that jump because I had built things up to the point that it was feasible. Uh, moving to Ohio helped because it's super cheap. I mean, you go from California to Ohio, it's like, man, everything's cheap here. So um, I think the big thing for me has just really been I, I'm someone who doesn't work amazingly well if I have to make my own schedule. You're not yet. It's just not an excuse. I'm, I'm working on that. I do much better if someone's like, hey, be in the gym at six. Okay. <laughs> done like then I that's that was almost one of the best things that Cal uh, of many things I learned so much there from a lot of people but one of the things that was great with Cal is it kept me on a schedule and so transitioning out of that I'm not as <laughs> not as great sometimes but it you know it's been good I think the thing for me now is just I want to get into coaching high school track I've been co- working coaching youth soccer which has been awesome um, I don't think I'd have this opportunity to to do these things or I wouldn't if I was still at a university. So and it, for me, my mind is so broad, like seeking that I do like my mind wants to learn all the sports, all the populations, all the sports 
and kind of work globally to synthesize new ideas. And so I think taking that leap has worked well for me in that perspective. Um, and again, it was kind of a thing where I think track was always in my blood. So being like a strength coach for the output sport was something that I think I, I just don't know, know how long the way my brain is wired, how long that was going to be a possibility for me. Uh, you want to jump into the very, very last one? Yeah, you touched on it. So I'm going to challenge you to not use the same answer you had earlier in the podcast <laughs> about the middle ground. But um, last question for every guest, what is something that you do or think that a majority of the field would disagree with? Yeah, I, well, I had written some written down. <laughs> I mean, I, if, I had a if it's things. a list, if it's a list and you just want to like name a couple, yeah. that's great too. Yeah, I mean, to me, I guess I, I I would say, I guess it would it would just be that I think that everything we need to know about strength for athletes, just the strength side, has been figured out. Like, I don't. There's no new. You hate to say. It, I I just think that the thing that I think people need to learn more of is the motor learning side, how we learn skills, skill development, because then it gives us that lens to look at more of what leads athletes to be successful on the field and to spend less time splitting hairs over should we Olympic lift, should we not Olympic lift? What should we you know do VBT? Should we not? I just think all that stuff is I think it's good, but I don't think it moves the winning losing needle. You know, I think that ultimately and to be honest, motor learning is something that binds multiple groups together. It's a language that the coaching staff and the strength this performance staff can both speak. Um, one of the things that's actually been really cool is talking with coaches who are like in player development about play. That's a motor learning thing. I just think that, you know, I, I mean, I should, there probably are things we can learn about strength still, but, but even that, I think that we've kind of gone as far as we can in strength from a point of bio in the biopsychosocial triangle. As far as bio, we've, we're like tapping out. We're hitting the ceiling, I think, of the effective use of our time. Whereas if we're looking at strength, the psycho and the social are still low-hanging fruits and uh, every other aspect of performance. And I just think learning, motor learning, how athletes learn skills and, and, and that common language, it's almost like puts everything under a universal umbrella. And I just think that's something that athletes should, that coaches, any coach, I don't care if you're youth, strength, the athlete performance, the sport coach. I think if we all spent more time learning how we learn, I think that the field would be a better place from little kids playing soccer up to even, you know, pros and post-collegiates and people playing pick up ultimate Frisbee. <laughs> um, I just think that's a missing piece that could really be of service to the field, even though I think it it's hard because it isn't a number. I think that's why people don't intuitively jump to it. It's not a checklist number I can put in my book but it reflects the mastery of it all, in my opinion. So those are some of my favorite topics. And I just think that, I think that, yeah, here's, I think we've reached about as far as we need to reach with the strength, growing strength side. I think all those answers are there in the past. And I think we need to evolve. We need to take on it. We need to change our way of thinking. So that's a, that with... that's a good answer. And it makes me think about a couple of things that I'll, I'll mention quickly, but one of them was, um, Corey Schlesinger at, at Texas with men's basketball. He's kind of like vague and mysterious with some of the mm -hmm. things that he like posts and talks about. But I think that one thing that he's really trying to do in this next layer is trying to like infuse the skill development with the actual like yeah performance side of things. And he's kind of alluded to it and posted like a couple things. And I think that like that blend is going to be really powerful in the future. Um, and then another thing that I think would be really interesting as, as a guest for me and Mike, but I'm thinking back to my time with the Sacramento Kings and just like sitting and watching the player development sessions take place. And I think a lot of them just pull from their experience because all of them were number one draft pick in the WNBA, like high level pro, high level pro, like they take their experience from them playing, but then it's interesting to see how they structure those player development sessions with like mm. games, small skills, bring in another player and kind yeah. of structure things and build it all up to actually these athletes being able to perform that small skill you implemented, but now within a NBA game, which is high intensity lights, but all this stuff. Mm -hmm. So I think that I guess maybe to Mike is maybe I should try to reach out to like some of that skill development realm, because I think that motor learning piece is something that they have 
obviously not perfected, but they're very good at it, even if they don't even realize it yet. Yeah. Yeah. And even those people who weren't like to the, the former points didn't have that experiential um, learning, right? Like they weren't at that highest level of potentially basketball, but still somehow have found the ways to be super successful in that kind of developmental role. So I think both would be super interesting. But yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> for sure. Now, Joel, we uh we'll get you out of here. I know that you're a busy guy, so we we really really appreciate you taking the time this morning to chat with Absolutely. us. And take uh take a couple seconds. Just where can people find you? I will I will uh plug one of your courses myself. I've taken the Sprint one and I've taken Elastic Essentials, and I love them both. But Elastic Essentials blew my mind. So for a quick plug, if you haven't taken that course yet, take it. So Joel, go ahead and let the people know where they can find you. Oh yeah. Well, thank you. I appreciate that, Hunter. Uh, yeah. So just fly sports.com with dashes, uh, not, uh, not the, just the words sadly, but Instagram and Twitter, just fly sports are, um, are probably the easiest place. Thank you guys for listening to the episode. Find us on social media at MTN underscore perform. And another shout out to our episode sponsor, Lumen sports. To find out more about Lumen or to download a free demo, head to lumensports.com or head to the show notes. See you guys next week.